This podcast is called Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest get some secrets off their chest. You should listen. It's the best. Hello and welcome to Obsessed with me, Joseph Scrimshaw. I'm sitting in my home with the other person who lives in my home and is the other person on this podcast. It's Sarah Scrimshaw. Hello. Hello. How are you? You know... I feel like the quick get it out before she remembers. <laughs> yeah, I just I just more wanted to get it over with. Yeah, the cruel question of how are you? How are you? You know, actually, I like that answer. I think that is kind of culturally developing. Like, I think it's gonna be one of those things that that's a common answer, and then you know, generations from now, people will be like. Why do people say you know? What does that even mean? That's not even a full sentence. What the hell is that? <laughs> and we'll be like, well, let me tell you about the pandemic. Back in 2020. Yeah. And I don't, old people will talk like this again. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, anyway, we have got, I think, a fun episode, but I'm biased because we're going to be talking about my obsession. Yeah. And I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, last episode, we talked about tea, which is legitimately one of your obsessions. Mm-hmm. So it was fun for me to go back into interview mode since we've been talking about things that we're both sort of uh, invested in. And this is really fun for me to really be on the other side of the table, as it were, of uh, of being in the position to talk about my obsession. And as I was thinking about it a little bit today, I was going through all the things that, uh, you know, my guests always used to when I interviewed a different person every week of like, I've got this list of facts that I need to say. Oh, and I need to say this about my relationship with this thing. And I need to, and I was like, no, remember, take your own advice, take a deep breath and just see where it goes. Uh, so with that, you are going to interview me about Frank Sinatra. I sure am. And guess hey. what? It's all a quiz about dates and facts. <laughs> I, I will do okay because I refreshed some of it. <laughs> Decided to change it all up. Uh, no, I, I am very excited to interview you about Frank Sinatra. Um, and part of why I'm very excited about this is both for a chance for you to be able to talk about something that you're obsessed with and also because... Um, I would say I know a little bit about Frank Sinatra, but a lot of that is from you. And so that that sounds fun. And I'm just excited to uh, go a little further into your obsession. Oh, thank you. So we're going to start with a classic. Okay. Um, if you had to describe Frank Sinatra to aliens, what would you say? Oh, I would say to the aliens, do you know about art? <laughs> <laughs> I would say that uh, Frank Sinatra was a singer but also an actor and a producer and a human who accumulated cultural and legitimate power. And through both his art and his choices in life, he made profound impact on uh, basically the 20th century uh, in terms of art, for sure. Uh, a lot of different things can be traced back to his choices as a, as a recording artist uh, but also through his relationship with intertwining entertainment and politics to a, another level. So he is both a an artist who is absolutely loved for his art, but then he himself became, out of his own making, a figure larger than life. So he lives on for his artistic legacy and aliens. <laughs> <laughs> he also lives on for his actual cultural impacts. Nicely done. Thanks. Yeah. I talk to aliens about Frank Sinatra in my mind all the time. <laughs> Good to know. Next time I see you, you know, just kind of sitting and staring at a wall, I'll be like, oh, he's talking to the aliens about Frank Sinatra again, isn't he? <laughs> you see aliens. Frank Sinatra never met Porgs, sadly. Anyway, um, yeah. 
Oh, I love it. I love that so much. Um, so let's talk, now we've talked to the aliens, talk a little bit about your own um, experiences with with Mr. Sinatra. <laughs> what was your first introduction to Frank Sinatra that you remember? Yeah, I I don't know my very first because it was, you know, growing up in the 80s, it was cultural osmosis. He was, you know, still around and sort of revered by my grandparents' generation as you know, kind of one of their own. I think maybe one of the earliest places I heard about him was probably a joke on Cheers. Like, I'm sure I'd heard his name just, like, on the radio or a a song being played or just somebody anywhere saying Sinatra, you know? Mm -hmm. But one of the ones that I think I remember is Cheers would have been, like, early 80s. There is an episode of Cheers where the bit is Carla thinks that God is acting on something in the bar and she's bugging Sam of like, who is the biggest big wig of all? And this old guy at the bar who's actually uh, played by the actress of Carla's father says Sinatra. <laughs> and this is no, no, the bigger than Sinatra. And he just keeps saying Sinatra, you know, and she's, she's looking for him to say God and he won't stop saying Sinatra. Uh, so I really remember being, having this, cultural impression of him as he was later in life or as he was sort of perceived as later in life as this kind of over the top always in a tux always in command bigger than everything chairman of the board and uh, that's kind of how I thought of him I saw there's a Phil Hartman did some sketches in the late 80s early 90s playing Frank Sinatra is this really boozing you know a powerful person who is out of cultural sync so you know said inappropriate things and didn't quite mm-hmm. understand what was going on and, and I thought that was really funny so I really thought the idea of Sinatra is funny is this sort of oversized figure who was out of step with time yeah how old were you approximately uh so by the time of like the the Hartman Phil Hartman stuff I mean I I try not to say my exact age on the podcast no, yeah no I just like approximately I mean yeah but so this is talking about like all of my life until like my late teens early 20s which is when I got into Sinatra for myself okay. but like that was just my like retroactively because mm-hmm. I love Sinatra so much I've tried to pinpoint like I probably heard that cheers thing before it meant anything to me and then I remember just thinking that the Phil Hartman sketches were hilarious mm-hmm. um and at the time, were based on like fresh revelations in a in a sleazy biography mm-hmm. uh, about Sinatra and his relationship with with uh, Nancy Reagan and things like that. Um, so I I wasn't aware, you know, actively in the time. It was just like he was so omnipresent in the culture. I probably heard the word Sinatra at some point when I was six months old over some broadcasting device. He, you know, right, right, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So what made it? made Frank Sinatra change in your mind from being a comedy figure that got referenced on Cheers to being um, somebody that you wanted to learn more about? Did you hear his songs first or see a movie first? What was what was the thing that kind of sparked a greater interest in him for you? Yeah, it was a it was a segue from comedy uh, into appreciating him. So, you know, I had graduated high school and I was hanging out with the more people, you know, getting started in college uh, who were doing. I had some friends who were artsy in high school 
Um, but a, a lot of friends were like, you know, let's let's dig up weird, um, obscure things. Sort of I, the term hipster didn't mean what it does now then. But mm-hmm. we were being hipsters a little bit of like, what's the cool stuff that nobody's ever heard of? Um, and I think a part of it for me was a lot of the stuff that I did like just had ended. Like Star Wars wasn't around. Mm-hmm. Doctor Who was canceled in 1989. Uh, James Bond movies stopped coming out for a while in 1989. Guns and Roses broke up. Kurt Cobain died. Like a lot of the pop culture that I had been invested in just kind of wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in what's obscure, weird stuff. And I'm not in high school anymore. So I can just there, there was no peer pressure to not like different or weird things. Mm-hmm. So I think I was kind of primed. Uh, but then, yeah, I was is uh, hanging out with some people working on like some comedy and some theater stuff. And uh then they had some snatch albums and played like his quote unquote funny songs like you know strangers in the night has the famous uh scat at the end of doobie doobie doo mm-hmm. which a lot of people you know poke fun at uh even uh, including his friends at the time poke fun at <laughs> mr sinatra for that uh he has a song called the coffee song okay uh which is this strange novelty song about how in brazil everything is coffee mm. uh and I started to want to, yeah, I was collecting vinyl and at mm-hmm. that point getting like rock albums. But then like I found an album that had the coffee song on it and I listened to it and then I was like, <laughs> I laughed at the coffee song and it's like, but that instrumentation, that's kind of cool. And then I just found myself listening to it. I was like, wait, this is amazing music. <laughs> nice. And I kind of, I did that with a couple different albums. Like Strangers in the Night is this very strange album that has... Uh, kind of the, the classic uh, uh, swing big band orchestration that Sinatra had been doing for a long time. Uh, but that but that came out in 65 when like the Beatles were taking over everything. Uh, so they were just kind of desperate to be like, it's Sinatra, but now there's an organ. <laughs> <laughs> and then the whole album is just like this really quirky, great Tin Pan Alley classics that Sinatra kind of breezes through with traditional orchestration. And then a weird 60s organ and the more and more i listened to that i was like wait i'm not laughing i'm not listening to these to laugh at them i am starting to understand more of the artistry of who this guy is and then i uh once i started to figure out like what his actual life had been and Mm -hmm. not just this caricature of the sort of end of his public career i just kind of became fascinated with the human yeah yeah so then how did you go about researching in the pre-internet era (laughs) did you did you what like what were you compelled toward first listening to more music watching movies he had appeared in reading biographies what was your what was your approach yeah the movies came a little bit later i was one of the joys at this time in my life because this was like a, a transition time and a difficult time in my life which is a part of it as well is was so one of my joys was going like record shop hunting and, you know, back in the day, that was like, again, you couldn't Google. So this was like kind of like uh, cultural archaeology. And you would see like Strangers in the Night. It's a it's a photo of him in a recording studio. And he's already kind of starting to look like this later in the career chairman of the board, always in a tux, always in control kind of guy with the bravado and the swagger. But then you just see like, wait a minute, who's this skinny guy in a really floppy bow tie on this record? And, you know, where's why is he painted as a clown on this one that's called Only the Lonely? What the hell is this about? So it just sort of discovered sort of visually his 
his career and starting to get new albums. And then I, I picked up at a used bookstore. It, it's a partially a biography by his daughter, partially a remembrance uh, from Nancy Sinatra of their life. It was, he, she wrote it long before he passed. Uh, but it kind of it just marched through his life. And that's the thing that really locked in is suddenly this guy who was totally out of step to me, totally from another world. I it was just suddenly like, oh, wait, he is incredibly similar to me and incredibly similar to the way I want to be. Mm. Uh, a huge amount of my connection was, you know, through the majority of his life, he was incredibly rail thin. And that has had been a truth for me in my life, which had affected my life and my perception of myself massively. Mm-hmm. Like I had been mocked and called a French fry and, you know, had you know, sad little hurtful things that, you know, everybody goes through something of it, but like things like, you know, people laughing on the playground and going up to girls and going, would you ever date Scrimshaw? Like, no, you can see his bones, like literal (laughs) cartoon things. Like I, 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 uh, it's always a hard thing to talk about because you, when you say like, I was teased for being thin, people like boo hoo, but I was thin to that sort of skeletal point, you know, Mm because it was just my metabolism. Yeah. That it became a big part of my like vision of myself. Uh, So that Sinatra was famously thin to the point where it was a part of his um, just the cultural awareness of it of him in his first bloom of success in the in the 40s. There was even like a radio horror show that had an ironic episode called The Day Sinatra Got Fat because it was so absurd Wow. That Sinatra, known for being rail thin, mm-hmm. could ever put on weight. Like it, it. Uh, so that was like a huge part of what his identity was. Uh, he, uh, I was not an only child, but at that time in particular, I was feeling very lonely. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his youth was being extremely lonely, uh, having been raised in a family that had a lot of strong opinions. So he had to fight to be who he wanted to be, which is the way I was also feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's just like a ton that I was like this great. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's why we look back at history. That's why we don't make snap judgments about, you know, who people are based on the little bit we've seen of them of like suddenly snapping into focus of like, Oh, I, I, I can relate to this person across space and time, and maybe they can even give me some ideas about how to move forward. Mm, yeah, yeah, fascinating. What, what changes or influences in terms of your actions do you feel like um, were caused at that point by learning more about Sinatra? I think it propelled me to want to be uh, a performer more yeah uh and i think wanting to be a performer that somehow finds a way to just uh be confident in in your personality and your sort of like uniqueness Mm. um because i mean a huge thing about sinatra is uh it's kind of it's cliche to say if you've spoken about sinatra at all or heard about sinatra at all pretty much is just his music is incredibly different because he does tell the story Mm. Like he emotes through the music so much. Uh, and when you watch performances of him, he has all these weird little quirky moves. And I, I was just really like, oh, that's not, not only did he have this very like um, this personality of like he grew up teased and feeling dominated by his family 
and dominated by his neighborhood and dominated by the Irish cops in his neighborhood and looked down upon and he's a real scrappy like I'm gonna fight my way to the top but then a lot of his performance is just really just not there's nothing there are macho things about Sinatra for sure and some of his flaws definitely come from that desire to be stereotypically macho but his art and his performance is just rip your heart open and share yourself with the world mm-hmm. and I hadn't experienced Experienced that a ton because of the kind of entertainment I was growing up with and particularly the kind of music which was all about bravado mm-hmm. or you know even even light pop music in the 80s was still like I am pu- putting on an affectation that I am totally in control and my music is cool and you should want to dance like me and you should want to move like me and mm-hmm. you know and Sinatra's just uh, you know especially like the saloon songs, the sad songs the just wailing pain and the songs that were more jubilant because a romance is going well is just this ode to joy is just this explosion of emotion and and that was just a huge turning point for me in the way I saw art and performance yeah yeah I love that that's that's wonderful and I don't think I exactly knew that oh so this is fun we're learning learning. this is practically (laughs) just a little marriage exchange right (laughs) If at that point there had been a Frank Sinatra fan club, would you have joined it? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. What would you have wanted a Frank Sinatra fan, fan club to be at that point? Uh, I would have been desperate to talk to other people about Sinatra. Mm. And like, again, this was, you know, the, the Internet was in its absolute infancy. And uh, one of the things I got out of that book by Nancy Sinatra was there was a discography in the back. So mm. I could know which records were super rare and existed because I never saw them. You know, and it was even to the point where like some of the records, if you got them, uh, the, got the ones that were actually old enough at these record stores would have pictures of the other albums on the paper sleeve. And uh. then you could know, go like, oh, that one exists. And there was one that I searched for for a super long time that they advertised, printed on the paper sleeve, never came out. So I spent years (laughs) searching for an album that does not exist, was never recorded, was never printed. Um, Wow, but they advertised it on the sleeve. Yeah, because they were going to make it. Yeah, on the paper sleeve of the other albums from Reprise, the the company that he started later in the 60s um, that Snatcher started. So yeah, I would have loved, loved the, um, uh, just the knowledge. And I was desperate for connection. Yeah. Like the 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 people who had introduced me to Sinatra liked him and I was like, cool. And then I quickly just eclipsed <laughs> any <laughs> level of interest they had. Uh, my brother and his uh, partner at the time also really liked Sinatra. So we did we did kind of go in it together. But I think, um, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I, I felt like it helped. It hit me on a deeper level mm-hmm. um, because of where I was at. Just yeah. kind of emotionally, yeah. Uh, the, the the connection that I made with Sinatra, and um, yeah, and and uh, I don't want to wander away from your your great fan club question uh, too much, but but a, a big Go part of it. it was, you know, uh, particularly like he his first era recording era is the Columbia era, mm-hmm. and that's kind of before LPs. Like you'd have some seventy eight collections or whatever. Uh, right toward the end of that era, he starts there starts to be you know, actual albums as we know them. But Sinatra really helped create albums as we know them when he moved to Capitol and had his big uh, uh, return. Mm-hmm. Um, that that idea of like, you would have one long playing album that is all built around, around a theme. 
And as his career developed and he really established albums as we know them, uh, one of the architects of that, he would, every other album would be a swinging one with, you know, bright, bouncy, fun songs. Mm-hmm. And then there'd be an album of saloon songs. Uh, and the saloon songs are all like, you know, one for my baby and angel eyes and, uh, you know, when no one cares and only the lonely and all these songs that are about breakup and despair. Mm-hmm. And I had had a, a, a kind of a breakup, a thing that didn't work out well toward the end of high school. And I was really devastated mm-hmm. in a way that I hadn't, that I hadn't really experienced before. And it was like that. It was like he was reaching through time to say, I understand. Yeah. You know, in, the music existed at the time, like they're ballads or whatever, but almost all the ballads were like, I'm going to stop screaming about being a rock God for a second to, you know, sing like one song about love, but they weren't that like, uh, the soul has been ripped out of me. How, I don't know how I'm going to go on and move one foot forward mm-hmm. anyway. <laughs> like, I mean, that's what some of these albums are and to just feel that. So the emotional connection was really strong so to, to get back to your fan club. Yeah, no, question. that's great. I think I would have been incredibly hungry to uh, just talk to people about, like, which albums do you have? Does this song, you know, of his saloon albums, which do you think is the saddest? You know, when no one cares is not the most popular, but I think it's actually the saddest. And I don't know why people don't talk about it more, like, <laughs> in that kind of just that connection. Yeah. Now, I know you and many people know you as... um a collector of many different types of things, including action figures, um, LPs. Would you have wanted there to be something that came as part of the fan club, whether monthly or annually you got, I mean, I realize some sort of album is the like <laughs> the logical choice, but say album is not an option. Is there some other thing, like if you could have had Frank Sinatra stickers or pens or notebooks is there a thing that you would have wanted yeah like a a, a different whiskey tumbler with a, <laughs> like a different lyric you know there's a lot of things that sinatra as he is he grew older you know really associated with himself through specific songs dice you know because of vegas mm-hmm. and luck mm-hmm. be a lady uh you know and and um a cigarette lighter you know uh, all sorts of thing an ashtray yeah. <laughs> i don't uh i i'm I have smoked previously in life, not now, and uh, don't recommend it. Uh, but that part of that aesthetic, especially back then, mm-hmm. would have been thrilling to me. Uh, because, yeah, it was, you know, I, 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 the I eventually, eventually did, Barbie made a Sinatra, a couple of Sinatra dolls that I eventually bought. Cause, like, I think that's the oh, closest really? I'm going to get to an action figure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but they were giant Barbie dolls. But this, is, this was years later after my initial yeah. falling in love with Sinatra. Yeah. So I want to get back to what you started to talk about the albums and his time with Reprise and with Capital. So this is the thing that I know about you is that you really like to know the the story behind an album or a song and kind of who is recording it. And especially with Sinatra, but with others as well, like who is kind of who is calling the shots? What was the, what was going on at the time? Who was the arranger? Is that something that you were already interested in and then you found this? trove of information about Sinatra or is that also an interest of yours and a kind of an approach that stemmed from listening to and learning about Sinatra albums? You know, I, I never thought of it that way, but I think the behind the scenes comes a lot from Sinatra mm. and maybe it would have come from something else, but I was never super into needing to know more about the, um, 
the band members, you know, when I, when I was into rock and playing drums and, you know, I didn't, I kind of liked them being mysterious. I kind of liked not knowing who the hell Slash really was. He was just this, you know, uh, as they used to advertise him on stage, this uh, strange creature with a guitar. Like, <laughs> I kind of liked the mystery. But with the Sinatra albums, when you're hunting them, like, he had a thing, particularly in the Capitol and Reprise years, where he wanted to work with different arrangers and conductors. And so mm-hmm. a Nelson Riddle was like, that's solid. That's going to be really solid. Uh, a Billy May arranged and conducted album is going to be uh, have a little bit more weird cartoon flair and be bonkers and have an element of like really playing to Sinatra's more comedic and avant-garde side. And oh, Gordon Jenkins album is going to be a little bit more strings and a little lean a little bit more towards schmaltzy. And like so learning some of those behind the scenes things were almost more like I could see the album in the store in, in the used record store and know a little bit of what I would be getting based mm. on who was involved. So I think it did make me on a practical side, more interest and for sure learning the songwriters. Yeah. Because like some of the songs I would, I would have been kind of aware of just from cultural osmosis, but other ones, like I very quickly was like, Oh, when a lyrics like really witty and cutting, it's Johnny Mercer, Cole Porter <laughs> or Ira Gershwin, you know? Yeah. And, and really quickly, you know, Sinatra was an absolute gateway to a ton of different things and people and different eras of entertainment and different intersections of eras of entertainment. And that, that all did come from becoming really invested in the behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about how much you connected with young Sinatra and skinny Sinatra and, and artist kind of his initial artistic journey. Um, how did your, how did your relationship with kind of um, as Sinatra got older, did your relationship or your feelings about um, Sinatra change or were there other parts of his life that really spoke to you? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, is, uh, you know, I meant to start this podcast with the caveat of, I know <laughs> there are, there are probably some listeners who have negative opinions about Sinatra and he absolutely, you can find movies where he absolutely says, you like, yeah, that's a, uh, from, to my mind, a horrifically sexist thing. Um, but I think by identifying with him and learning his life in the flow, uh, you know, I think he's a complicated, fascinating person. And I definitely think he had some flaws. And I think he did some not great things. But I don't have any interest in needing to say he was an entirely good person, an entirely bad person. Mm-hmm. What I got out of it, the shock for me was, um, you know, the Phil Hartman impression was sort of spiraling out of some some stuff that Sinatra did later in his career in the 60s and 70s to be this sort of like I'm the guy still swinging in Vegas and I'll say the shocking thing that you know you're kind of not supposed to say that's what those Phil Hartman sketches were based on Mm -hmm. so there's this picture of this old out of touch guy you know Mm. uh, who says inappropriate things Mm -hmm. you think that's who Sinatra was he's just this swaggering asshole and then you learn his actual story, life story from perspective from the beginning. You learn that he's a, a single child. He, when he was born, the doctor had to pull him out with forceps. So he's got these giant scars across his uh, face, across his neck, in his face that you can see in the vast majority of his work for the almost the rest of his life. Mm. Um, and he is this single, lonely Italian child. It feels. In Hoboken, <laughs> feels picked on by Irish cops. 
He's lonely, so he hangs out with a bunch of uh, Jewish families. And because of those experiences, he becomes immediately in his career this outspoken, extremely democratic champion of the time for diversity. And he he has no pause as his career takes off to think like, should I be careful about what I say so I don't lose any anybody? Mm-hmm. Um you know, he was the up and coming rival to unseating Bing Crosby, the entertainer who had who was more successful than anybody thought any entertainer could ever be across all of these mediums. Nobody's ever going to be Bing Crosby. And then Frank was like, hi. Uh, <laughs> and Bing was like more like conservative and stayed. Mm-hmm. And Frank was like, no, my name's Sinatra and I'm not changing it to Damone or, you know, <laughs> or Diamond. You know, like people try to like, no, I'm Sinatra mm-hmm. and I support people being who they are. And I see, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. performing with his family, the Will Maston Trio, and say, I don't care if he's black. He's opening for me mm-hmm. because he's amazing. And you and, you know, and I'm this, you know, scrappy underdog, uh, you know, from Hoboken. But now I have power and I'm going to use it. And if you don't want Sammy here, I'll fire you. Uh, so there's this mixture of that sort of like underdog and bravado that is a combination of sort of, I think, um, really commendable ideas about diversity and using his 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 actual power and his willpower often for good. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes a little bit later in his life, I think, like many people, he did become a little bit obsessed with power and just the idea of it. But I think that I'm I'm an underdog, and so I got to push push back, I got to punch back, I got to fight is always there. Um, but yeah, it, it was it's one of those things of like it's a it's a lost in time moment. And that's what I, or lost in time life uh, in, in some respects. And I think that's what really affected me of like in that cultural osmosis I was talking about when he, and on Shears, the joke about him is he's bigger than God. He's Sinatra. Mm -hmm. He has a gold microphone and he sleeps in a tux and he (laughs) bathes in champagne if he wants to, you know, and he'll fire all your dads because he can, because he's the chairman of the board. Like some of that did, you know, grow out of his actual choices and his actual behavior. But he starts as this this champion of diversity. He wins an Oscar that they just sort of made up, a special Oscar in 1944, because he made this short film called The House I Live In, mm-hmm. where he finds a bunch of kids uh, fighting and beating each other up for being different. And the film is just Frank Sinatra walks into an alley and tells these kids, that's not America, that's not how you're supposed to be, and then sings this song called The House I Live In, which is about... America as the house, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, going on and on. Uh, I don't think he's perfect. He made a lot of mistakes. He, he uh, certainly, you know, I think fell into the trap of ego. But I bet I had have this empathy and this connection for him because I see how he started. Yeah. And I see the power of how he started. And that was a huge amount of what connected me to him, too, of this idea of like, oh, my God, somebody can be as famous and powerful as Sinatra and their life can just be lost in the cultural imagination. Yeah. Their actual life. Yeah. Do you feel like he is um, recognized today for some of the things that he, that he did, um, especially with pushing diversity, the house we live in should perhaps just be on TV weekly for America these days. I've seen it pop up Uh, uh, like once or twice (laughs) when people are like, hey, remember, we've been having these problems as America for a long time. Here is (laughs) Sinatra's Frank Sinatra, the guy that people kind of think of as that that old, not politically correct guy. Right. What, 80-year-old? No. 
I can't, I'm not going to be able to do math. Yeah. It came out in the 40s? Yeah. Yeah. So 1944. Yeah. Close to 80 years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. Movie that we all need to watch. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think connecting. But do you feel like that's become part of his legacy that people know? Or do you feel like that's one of those things that unless you're a Sinatra fan, it's kind of lost to time? I think it's lost to time is I I mean maybe or, being melodramatic uh, because I think anybody who chooses to study it or takes a moment to read his Wikipedia page, like it's not lost to time. They're amazing Sinatra scholars. I'm I'm talking to myself for that, but I'm being melodramatic by using lost yeah. lost to time is. I think the thing I guess what the the thing that I'm reacting to is yeah I do absolutely still think that a ton of people's just snapshot of him in his of his era is crushing horrific sexism and racism and absolutely there was but uh, often sinatra is the figure who was fighting against that and was staunchly democratic and like uh and the the rat pack in particular so you know by by the 60s he's uh he had an incredibly successful career in the 40s it all fell apart he uh made this big comeback in the 50s, which was a part of his underdog legend where he he's the guy who everything fell apart publicly in front of all of America and the world, mm-hmm. and he came back. And that's a long, uh, a big part of the legend. By the 60s, he was really representing, I think, the World War II generation that was like, screw it, we deserve to play. We, in fact, built a whole city in Las Vegas <laughs> just so we can screw around and play because screw it. We went through the Depression. We went through World War II. We deserve to party. And Sinatra and the Rat Pack were a part of that. People will hear clips of the Rat Pack and be disgusted, uh, which on one hand, okay, that's totally, totally understandable. But at the time, th- when you listen to the some of those recordings, uh, it, it, it was boundary breaking because they, Sinatra or Dean Martin would say something that was, you know, uh, playing on a stereotype and they'd get a laugh. And it would be this sort of like edgy comedy, as we know today, of like, you don't you don't say that. You know, we know that people kind of think that about other people, but you don't say that. And they'd get kind of a light laugh. And then Sammy Davis Jr. would come in and subvert it and make a joke that was empowering of diversity. Mm-hmm. And then the room would explode. Mm. And I think that nuance is lost. Like, yeah, it's not perfect. Uh, I think anybody should listen to it and have their opinion. And and I would defer to anybody uh, uh, about what their opinion is. But for me, knowing Sinatra's history, there was an effort to, to, to mock those stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get to Phil Hartman, there's no mocking. There's just an a, a assumption that Sinatra actually holds horrific beliefs. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting. And I th- and that kind of gets to, I think, what I was poking around at of kind of what our pop culture, cultural knowledge is and what his place is in kind of the general yeah. um, cultural understanding of him versus who he actually was, which is not unique to Sinatra. I think that happens to a lot of people that they get pegged in one particular one particular uh category yeah absolutely or yeah. you just know the main bi- their main song or the main cultural association with them like you and yeah. i were talking about the bgs the other night and mm-hmm. i know them from staying alive yeah and that is not the entire bg story at all right oh no not <laughs> even remotely so much to say about that but not today um so how has living in los angeles changed your relationship 
or your perspective on Sinatra, if it has. I'm just curious. Oh, wow. I think it has made me in some ways uh, be able to reconnect to the human, not the legend. Mm. I think that uh, L.A. is good at doing that in general. I, I always think of L.A. as a place that is both a dream and then a dream shatterer at the same time. It is, it, it is the place <laughs> that wants to put people uh, high up in the skies and then have them be crushingly real at the same time. Like I, I think to me, Hollywood's in Los Angeles's relationship with like fame, it, like the Hollywood walk of fame, we, we will put stars to honor the very best and you. It's a big honor and you have to fight to get them. And then we literally walk on them. Dogs pee <laughs> on them. Like it's, and that to me is a little bit of an analogy for Los Angeles. But like y- you know, uh, we can see the spire of the Capitol Records building. The Capitol Records building is where Sinatra recorded a lot of his most famous uh, and best albums. And to just kind of be that close to it and just be like, he drove into this parking garage. You know, uh, he uh, we often eat at a place uh, in called the Smokehouse. Where he he hung out there for years and years. They have pictures of him on the wall of incredibly thin, po- you know, impossibly thin Sinatra, to you know later in life a little, a little uh, thicker Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Both photos just eating like mad and and chatting away and having a heated discussion. Uh, he's a real social person who wanted to always be surrounded by people and talking and debating. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they have a dish there called the steak Sinatra. Which, you know, I, I'm pretty sure is just he's just like, can you I I had, you know, my mom used to make something like this. Can you? <laughs> and now it's just a, so I can, you know, eat what he, he ate. And in a way, I think it, it is um, Sinatra for me, the, the human as much as the artist has always been when I have felt unmotivated reminder to be like. You, you do have to push for what you want. Like, don't be cruel to people, mm-hmm. but advocate for yourself and make. You know, don't just say it can't be done. Fight, fight, fight for it. Not yeah. in an aggressive way towards other people, but in an advocating for yourself way. And I think just seeing that, like, this L.A. is a place of dreams, but it's also just like a city where, you know, you have to pull into the parking garage and dogs pee places like that. It brings him him back to earth and imagining yeah. him walking around going, you know, on the same streets that I walk uh, going ah, man, I'm not, my throat's not feeling great. I don't know if I want to record today, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Should I push this one off? But, oh, but no, but, or like, uh, I'm really not sure if that song is the right one to go third on side A, you know? Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm walking down the street going, I'm not sure if that should be the act and, you know, the twist in the third act of the script I'm working on makes, really brings him down to reality. Yeah, that's beautiful. Oh, thank you. I like that a lot. So, We'll get back to his albums, but I want to switch just for a moment. Um, at what point in your um, learning about Sinatra did you discover that he was also a painter? Oh, that was in, in the book, too. Okay. That, that book was just like the, this holy tome that locked yeah. it because I, I read about the movies and got a list of where I could find movies. Uh, and that had, I think that book has a couple of pictures of his paintings in them. But yeah, that just. Uh, that really made me uh, love him even more because I was at that point in school to be uh, a visual artist, a painter, mm-hmm. um, and uh, seeing that connection. And also, I think that's the thing is that 
there's this part of the human, and again, I can't say it enough, he absolutely did some awful things. You're going to find some clips of, like, that's not cool. Um, but there was this this soft, gentle soul to him. And there's this part of me that even then was like, you know, if he was if he was born now, he wouldn't have to do as much. Of the, he probably wouldn't have been compelled to do some of the bravado side of his his uh, persona. Mm-hmm. But like some of that bravado, some of that chairman of the board stuff was kind of pumped up in the. He briefly retired in the in the late the sixties, early seventies, and then came back. And then that was, I think, he kind of had that mantle. I think that the World War Two generation probably wanted of like the we're still here, we're still fighting. You know, we're not scrappy anymore. In fact, now we run these corporations. You know, like, and he kind of his his image took all that on. And in reality, he went and did some concerts, and then he went home to his wife and his dogs and his granddaughter, and he painted big, you know, big orange squares because he loved the color orange. <laughs> and, like, even by the time, like, I think that book was written in 85, mm-hmm. her, his daughter Nancy's perception of him was my dad. And now he's a cuddly grandpa who is most happy with a, a Mars bar and some paint alone in his sunroom. You know, <laughs> that there's clear this clear arc through his life of whatever else he did, whatever else he symbolized. There's always this sort of like lonely, intense person with these just truly blazing blue eyes old mm-hmm. blue eyes I always heard and realized oh that's not an exaggeration this person with just all this intensity to him who was absolutely like me on the extrovert introvert line of some parts of him are deeply private and shy and frightened and some parts of him were like give me the biggest stage and the loudest microphone and and for these this next 90 minutes only look at me boom power you know mm-hmm. really that introvert extrovert line but the the painting part really was like that you know that uh sensitive artist soul yeah has, it was clearly a dominant part of him mm-hmm. yeah and a creator who was always finding a way to create yeah like so something yeah. like he uh, his paintings are super expensive because he's frank sinatra mm-hmm. but i don't think he was like and now for my next act i'm gonna get into the art he just liked to paint yeah like for real yeah yeah yeah, that's so cool. Um, back to music. Yes. What Sinatra song is in your head most often? Ooh, uh, that is so hard because there's so, so many. But I'll say Dancing in the Dark. I think that's the mm. one that I have a specific connection to. It's from the album uh, Come Dance With Me. And it's partially because of the the lyrics uh, and his, but his performance of the lyrics Come Dance With Me is a Billy May album, so a little bit more, you know, swinging, upbeat. Um, and it is, even then, when it was made, and I believe that one was 58, I believe. I could be wrong. Um, <laughs> even that was, like, already nostalgia for that generation because it was, because Come Dance With Me was looking back on, the, like, the big band days, and you'd all go down and have, you know, a big dance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the gym <laughs> with the big band music, with all the horns, you know, Uh so it's got that really swinging upbeat. All right, let, we're gonna go. We're you know we're still young. We can go out and party. Uh, but the actual song "Dance in the Dark" has these lyrics of uh, "What though love is old? What though song is old? Through them we can be young." Mm. And hear this heart of mine wailing all the time. Uh, and it's it's got a lyric about 
um, that basically sounds like it's about death. Mm-hmm. That is about like the music and the passion, you know, continuing no matter what. Yeah. Uh, so it's this weird like upbeat dance song kind of about <laughs> uh, mortality. Mm-hmm. So that one has always stuck with me that's one when i was like extremely young going i would like that song played at my funeral so i think that's the <laughs> one that i probably have the most uh connection to because of that specific like i think also that really hit me at the time because by the time i was listening to that song mm-hmm. i had uh and I, I partially regret this i was so into sinatra and so into it from there uh martin and lewis and ella fitzgerald and eartha kit and getting into more i probably started watching orson welles movies because i read about <laughs> him and sinatra interacting and you know really learning more about this different age of entertainment which was really enriching but i kind of tapped out of <laughs> actual pop culture mm-hmm. for a little while there so and i felt really out of step with the people that i was going to college with at that point um and uh, hearing that line, what though love is old, what though song is old, through them you, you know, we can be young, felt like it was speaking to me, felt like it was saying, okay, for it's okay for you to be getting so much from this dusty old music, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was okay. Oh, thank you. you. You want songs to last for a long time, then it's the power of art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can speak to you across time. All right. Uh, do you have a favorite album? Ooh, yeah, uh, no. I, I mean, I, I know. you know I what? I need to ask the mean question. I know. Sorry. I tried to write <laughs> do it you have a down. List? <laughs> I do. I do. Uh, yeah, so the just a very, very brief uh, musical history of Sinatra. <laughs> to explain this. Watch how fast I'm going to do this. It's going to be so great. Uh, yeah, so he gets, it's back when singers, their their big breaks are to be picked up by a big band. So he sings with Harry James. He sings with Tommy Dorsey. He uh, gets out of the contract with Tommy Dorsey, but not in the way the Godfather uh, <laughs> movie or book implies that it's not supposed to be Sinatra. Uh, he did not put a horse heads in, any, in anyone's bed, <laughs> even though he did have a relationship with the mafia. That is well documented. Uh, so then he, he has his great solo career uh, in the 40s. Uh, Columbia, he he can't go into the military because his eardrum is punctured from those forceps when he's uh, when he's born. So he's four F. Um, so Columbia, big big thing. He his career collapses for multiple fascinating reasons that maybe we'll have time to talk about. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he is he collapses. Everything ends. The music, his music contract ends. His movie studio contract ends. He is uh, thought of as this forgotten guy who is just this pretty crooner for uh you know young women to get excited about while their uh, fellows were off at war and he's going to be you know forgotten soon and then he has this massive comeback uh you know for in movies music and then in cultural presence and that's when he starts with capital that's when he really gets uh, with nelson riddle that's when the the long playing album becomes kind of this dominant uh artistic and commercial force. Um, and then later he creates his own record label called reprise. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of my albums are kind of tied to that. The capital thing that, that took off, which like nobody, everybody was like, you can, we're not, we're going to pay you next to nothing. We're going to give you a chance. Cause you're washed up, you know, bow tie guy from the 1940s, but okay, we, you can make two, you know, short albums, uh, 10 inch and it's song for young lovers, which is the infamous cover of kind of lonely Sinatra leaning up against the lamppost. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not huge instrumentation, but it's Nelson Riddle 
and his his voice is lowered and he's emoting more. He's not trying to be perfect. He's trying to be real. Yeah. Uh, and it's just really powerful. So songs for young lovers and swing easy. Um, then later in the capital era, once he's really taken off, uh, come fly with me is a great like sampler album because usually, like I said, it's either the swinging album or the sad album, the saloon songs album and come fly with me is this actual tour around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really varies in tempo. Uh, so you get to hear like kind of a sample of, uh, some of the more lush, romantic Sinatra, the happy upbeat Sinatra and a little bit of the sad Sinatra. Uh, Ring-a-ding-ding is the first reprise album. Okay. And that's the one that has the coffee song on it. And that's the one that made me go like, hey, wait, (laughs) this is actually amazing music, not just a thing to laugh at. Um, And then, uh, you know, it's a toss up between In the Wee Small Hours and Only the Lonely, which Mm -hmm. are both Capitol Records as well, uh, which are two of the saloon songs. Like, if you're sad about anything, these are great... (laughs) pandemic songs honestly uh, albums honestly yeah it's just like it, it's just the catharsis of i don't know it, i would assume most humans experience this but i know all humans are different i know i have those moments where you just like you know what i need right now is yeah i will get up tomorrow and try to make it better but right now i just want to be sad <laughs> these albums are just like right there going i i'm with you yeah i'm so with you it's okay to just be sad. Let's be really sad together. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So uh, those those two albums. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. I'm I'm gonna stop myself. You did great. I, that was what ten? <laughs> <laughs> Three, four, with a slight musical history in there. <laughs> Five, six, mm-hmm. seven, eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we keep kind of mentioning um, some of the movies he was in. But I do want to talk just for um, a moment about that, or rather have you talk for just a moment about that. Uh, what was your, what was the first movie that you saw him in? Ooh, um, I think I probably uh, saw what would have been the actual first movie that I saw. It might have been The Man with the Golden Arm. And was it intentional? Like, I want to see a Sinatra film, or did it happen to occur when your eyes were watching it <laughs> oh no no so like uh i had that book again uh-huh. and then i would go to suncoast pictures <laughs> and the, the, for the most part the you know either i couldn't afford the vhs or it wasn't there uh the i, I used to check out vhs tapes at the library so i'd mm-hmm. see if the library had any in or then that was also the era of life where like the tv guide would come out and i would just scan like a hawk of like is TCM playing any of them, particularly mm. the ones that you can't find? So then I would watch them on TCM. So it might have been High Society, which is a great um, musical with Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, which was like, oh, they'd done some stuff together, but it was mm-hmm. the like, they used to be rivals and now they're, holy crap, they're together and they have a song together. And Grace Kelly, great. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of Sinatra's whimsical, fun side in that movie. But mm-hmm. The Man with the Golden Arm is... Uh, in is 1955 so he's had his big comeback in the movie from here to eternity which is a whole other story uh but the man with the golden arm he uh plays a drug addicted drummer so i was a drummer and it started and it was like wait sinatra plays a drummer uh and it's it's at the time a film that caused a, a huge amount of controversy because the point was to show how awful drug addiction actually is and sinatra has this uh, scene where he's he's gotten out of prison he's 
he wants to be a drummer now because he learned in the joint and he's trying to get a job. But, you know, all the crappy forces in his life are trying to get him to deal again because he's, mm-hmm. he's a card shark, too. So the man with the golden arm has three meanings of is it because he's a, a great card dealer, <laughs> a drummer, or because he has a drug addiction problem? Uh, and there's an incredibly just gripping scene of, of him going through horrific withdrawals and mm-hmm. he was nominated for best actor. And so, yeah, it's, it's a great movie all by itself. And it's sort of uh, Sinatra at his best as an actor mm-hmm. is a kind of capital A actor. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. And I want to throw out there that I believe that the first Sinatra movie that you and I watched together, which we had both seen separately was high society. Probably. Probably. Because yeah. I am a huge fan of High Society, um, and you were too, and so there, happiness. It was. It was a good uh, partner friend moment. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, is there a particular concert of his that if you could go have been in the audience for one concert, whether a concert in the early years or a particular show um, you know, in Las Vegas or at any point, is there one concert that stands out of like, oh, that's the one I wish I was there for? Oh, that's so hard because, again, there are different eras and different... uh, How about if I can boil it down to two? I'll take two. Okay. I would see him in Vegas uh, with the Rat Pack. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, uh, there's some recordings of this, and it's great. And, you know, Sinatra does some sincere songs, but then he does all this, you know, uh, just goofing around. And at the time, it really was like... You you don't you maybe would see them on one of those talk shows or maybe get interviewed on you know a, a news radio show or that but this was like what they're just goofing around like they interrupt their own songs with jokes what uh, so I would I would love to see um, in Vegas uh, I, there was one that that has only recently in the last you know I don't know what it ten or so years whatever came out. Um, that I watched last year for his birthday that I would love to be at. It's a 1962 mm-hmm. and he is at uh, the Royal Albert Hall in London mm-hmm. and he is uh, performing for literal royalty. Mm-hmm. And it is so weird because it's like this, it's really great. He's at the top of his game. The The music's amazing. He's with this very small band uh, so it's it's kind of got that almost like virtuoso because it's, you know, these songs that are used to having these huge orchestrations, but they're just this incredibly tight, amazing, historically amazing musicians and then just guy with microphone. Yeah. Um, but it's at this intersection where if I can just do a little bit of more Sinatra history real quick. Please do. Um, so like he, he supported Kennedy. He was all in on Kennedy uh, because he's a huge vocal Democrat. Um, but also he, he, it does seem like he was like, I can't believe that I scrawny picked on kid from Hoboken have amassed such power that I can help make someone president and then be friends with them. Uh, so it's at this point, it is not super contested that Sinatra by the request of, of Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy went to the mobster, Sam Giancana and said, Hey, could you, could you tell your fellas to vote for JFK? Uh, and and that quite possibly helped get Kennedy elected. Uh, but then, uh, you know, his Kennedy's brother, uh, Robert, turned around and went after the mafia. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which made them the mafia extremely unhappy and put Sinatra in this weird place because everybody around Kennedy was like, you shouldn't hang out with Sinatra anymore. Uh, so he, so there was this kind of bubbling press that Sinatra isn't friends with the president anymore because mafia. Uh, <laughs> and was it known or suspected at that point that Sinatra had a connection to the mafia or was that like a new thing and a totally taboo thing? Like what was the sense at the time? I think at the time it was a danger to the Kennedy part of it because Camelot, right? Because right. the Kennedys were this new, fresh, you know, breath of fresh air. But the attachment between entertainment and the mafia was a known secret to the point where, like, Dean Martin will do jokes in the 60s, like, when somebody drops something on stage, he'll say, be quiet, there's a mobster upstairs trying to sleep, uh... There's a bunch of great Jerry Lewis stories where, like, Jerry Lewis, uh, you know, in in the 50s, it was like there's somebody ringside uh, while Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis are performing who wasn't paying enough attention. So Jerry Lewis smacks him upside this head and says, show's up here, buddy. And then afterwards, Dean Martin has to march him over and go, Jerry, apologize to this man or he will shoot you. like no 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 bs like it was a different world and everybody knew that in terms of the intersection between entertainment and mafia yeah it was a fairly well-known secret yeah and and Mm -hmm. and, uh, the the fbi had been investigating sinatra forever Mm -hmm. uh, because there there was for all these entertainers the squeakiest clean nicest entertainer you can imagine had some association because they owned the clubs right nobody had a career without some association with mobs mm-hmm. talking to mobs to help make someone president a, a little a rougher little a little bit more <laughs> of a problem so anyway the way this connects to 1962 is <laughs> sinatra you know he always gave a ton of money to to charity but he went on a specific uh, world tour to to take no money uh, to raise uh, money for children's charities. Mm-hmm. So we find him in 1962 performing for literal royalty at this weird intersection in his life where like, I kind of helped make a president, but I'm kind of pissed because now he doesn't want to hang out with me because I kind of did it through <laughs> some mafia power. And you see on stage this scrawny, powerless underdog from Hoboken, New Jersey, mm-hmm. who has the rapt attention of English royalty, yeah, kind of covering his ass, but kind of doing a I have conquered the world tour. And you can see him just sort of bristling of like, he does weird choices with the songs, which he always played a little bit because he's really restless and playful. Uh, but like he ashes on the stage and then kind of looks at the royalty like, yeah, I did that. <laughs> and you can see him just sort of like on one hand, like, I all my dreams achieved that, you know, this is this is the American dream. The 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 nobody from Hoboken is performing for royalty Mm -hmm. versus the nobody from Hoboken kind of wants to poke him in the eye because who are they to be better than him? And you can see all those things all at once. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Good choice. Thanks and sorry. No, no, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. There's a lot to talk about. And I'm just going to add a caveat now that I should have added at the beginning. We're not going to talk about everything. There's no. a lot more um, just because there is so much. But I'm going to bring in one other little aspect. Um, and that is that one of the connections that I have with Sinatra 
is his connection with mid-century modern architecture. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) Particularly in Palm Springs. Um, And I am wondering if he ever sang a song about architecture. Ooh, wow. Sang a song about architecture. That's a really good one. I am trying to imagine... the the this is the uh the weirdest one it's i think it's a i think it's available as a full song uh the girl who stole the eiffel tower also stole my heart i think that's the closest <laughs> that he that was a parody one for a movie that that did not do well because it was a meta movie uh in the 60s mm-hmm. about a screenwriter desperately trying to write a movie and that was sinatra being all in on it and being like yeah i often sing the title songs for you know romantic uh, movies. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'll do one that's absolutely ridiculous for your movie. So yeah. that's the that's the one I can think of. Nice. I don't think there's anyone that is about architecture. Yeah. Do you think he should have sung a song about mid-century modern architecture? Absolutely. Yeah. Because <laughs> then I could play that all the time. <laughs> um, I'll do some extra research. Thank you. He has a few songs. Thank you. Yes. I'll, I'll give you at least a day to do some research for this for me. So at one point there was talk about Ronan Farrow possibly being Sinatra's son. Yes. What do you think it would have been like to have him as a father? Frank Sinatra, that is, not Ronan Farrow. <laughs> Either would be great. I mean, no offense to my dad, but yes, no. Yes, I do not mean this as an offense to your dad. Um, his his children seem to love him, uh, like pretty, pretty vociferously. I think his son, Frank Sinatra Jr., who had a fascinating life, uh, who has passed away, um, I think had a complicated uh, relationship to him because he wasn't sure how to get out of his shadow. Um, and they ended up working together a lot in their, in their later life. Um, and I think one of the things about Sinatra that it, for me is right on that line of uh, admirable versus that not, that's not how I would do it mm. <laughs> is, you know, he really wanted to surround himself with the best. And if he thought you were the best, uh, you stayed with him forever. And he was so loyal and he would do anything for you. And you know, really develop these uh, artistic and life partnerships with other human beings. And he elevated people, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but a, a thing that comes up about him a lot was you'll know everything was great if Frank didn't say anything. Because he just, <laughs> he wanted that, like, I I really expect the best and I'll only bring it up if there's a problem. Interesting. And like, I, I get, again, like I get how that grows from the, you know, I got to fight. I got to fight. Everything's got to be the best. Now I'm on top and everybody wants to see me fall again. <laughs> you know, I got to push for the best. And, and you know, I've taken some bad advice when it, in, in the Columbia part of his career. He, he was more controlled and was made to do a lot of things that he didn't like artistically. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. some of that also came from like that. So so there's some like comments from his son about like he, he expected that perfection from me. Yeah. So I think that would be hard. But his his other his daughters, Nancy and Tina, just like seem to uh adore him yeah and like many uh people of that era like wasn't around a lot <laughs> had some yeah. uh, extremely well-known public affairs yeah. um complicated but remained <laughs> friends with his uh his his ex-wife and his uh you know the the mother of his children his entire life and remained mm-hmm. close to her um so it seems like for a hollywood of that era yeah yeah be great and ronan farrow is Absolutely, in my opinion, ridiculously, of course, Frank Sinatra's son. <laughs> Official opinion. <laughs> can I can I share one thing real quick? Please, about that? please. So 
Yeah. So when I was, this is really those levels of obsession. So I was, you know, in college and doing, I did a, a few paintings of Sinatra. I had a job for a while doing a cartoon and a, a, a um, like a comic book strip for a technology magazine, which uh-huh. is a really weird gig. Uh, but like I had a different characters and I decided to base one of them on Sinatra. So I have this weird relationship of like, I have literally studied his face to draw it like exactly how far apart his eyes are set, the exact curve of his nose, the exact curve of his cheeks of like, is as a visual artist, I studied that. Mm-hmm. And when I see Ronan Farrow, I'm like, come on, I've drawn that. <laughs> Those <laughs> are his the eyes. Same lines. Those are his cheeks. <laughs> Not Woody Allen's for God's sake. Yeah. 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 It's very strong opinion. <laughs> I love it. What do you think Frank Sinatra's Twitter feed would be like? Oh, wow. Boy, I'm trying to think. That's a great thing to process. I think it would have been uh, mostly political and then jokes. Mm-hmm. I think Sinatra really had this sense of whimsy. And another thing that makes him just kind of fascinating, not not an entirely good person, not an entirely bad person is, you know, but, but I think people try to paint him as one or the other and just be like, let's solve the mystery of Sinatra. And like, he was a human. It's not a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> he did some great things. He did some bad things. Um but I think what shines through again and again is he's got this sense of whimsy and sense of humor. And that's part of what the whole Rat Pack thing was about was there's some part of him that was still that lonely single child with busy parents who is like, I could do a show in Vegas all by myself and I have fun and get attention, but I want my friends to play with me. I don't even want to be alone on stage. Mm-hmm. And I think that that drive toward community, towards making jokes like it would have been so easy for him to be like, I'm a serious singer. I don't make jokes. And like, yeah. he is constantly, when you, when you see him, when you watch or listen to any concert things, he is trying to make jokes because he wants to get a laugh because he wants the spontaneity and the surprise of it. So I think he would have mostly, the vast majority of his Twitter feed would have been vote for FDR, <laughs> vote for Kennedy. I think a ton mm-hmm. of them would have been Nixon as a rat. You know, uh, he would have been extremely vociferous on his uh, political opinions. Mm-hmm. And then I think he'd, he'd try to make jokes, but he would not get fully, fully pulled in because he was extremely restless mm. and always ready to go on and do the next thing. He, he called himself to take Charlie, uh, Charlie just being, you know, at the time, a generic term for person right uh because he really didn't want to do more than two takes of a film Mm. because he thought spontaneity is everything in art when he recorded even in like the really controlled studios he had to have an audience of five or six people who had nothing to do with the recording if they're friends or strangers who won a lot lottery or whatever he needed there to be an audience yeah and he needed like he had to stop and you know do multiple takes or whatever but he needed to think of it as a performance. Yeah. And this is, I think, a part where I really connected to him, too, of like wanting that energy of spontaneity and yeah. forward movement and uh, honestly a little bit of restlessness. Yeah. Just uh, think about how much he would hate Zoom for performances. Oh, I, yeah. It's not, Sinatra <laughs> would not Zoom, I don't think. <laughs> would you like to spend, you know, if time and all of that and knowing people were not an issue, would you like to spend time with him as a person? Yeah. If you could spend one holiday with him, what holiday would you want to spend with him? Ooh, that's really interesting. Uh, uh, man, New Year's Eve. <laughs> New 
For sure. I had to give great, it a little bit of thought, but great yeah. Great choice. Now, you usually do um, a show on New Year's Eve, yeah. often some version of a variety show. Would you try to get him involved in the show? Absolutely. I would I love mean- it. I would love it. I have done, you know, some fun things where I, I write up a basically kind of a choose your own adventure mm-hmm. uh, stories. Like uh, I've done a, a ton of comedy and variety shows with my friends, the Double Clicks, uh, wonderful human beings. And every once in a while we'll get a guest who's like, got a ton of stage presence but isn't a performer like we did a show with uh the great comic book writer kelly sudakonic who is largely responsible for the uh, interpretation of captain marvel that's in the film mm-hmm. and she's got a cameo in the film and she's just amazing she's fantastic full of life and charisma but she's not like a stand-up who's like i've got my tight five set or a musician with like i'm gonna pull out my ukulele so like sure i'll guess what you want me to do and, like i wrote a choose your own adventure where she like made up the superhero she was going to be on the spot and it was like hilarious and sinatra is the kind of person who'd be like yeah that'd be fun it's spontaneous and in the moment and i can be weird and wacky yeah like you know in his heyday that's that's the kind of fun weird stuff that he would throw himself into yeah now, like when, when it's his music and his show he wanted it to be the way he wanted it to be to be perfection in his mind but then you can see when he do, he's doing anything else, it's all it's all an element of let's be playful, let's have fun. Yeah, and he kind of had that with the Rat Pack, didn't he? That it was that was a playful show. Oh yeah, yeah. So the the Rat Pack setup was uh, Dean Martin did a set, Sammy Davis Jr. did a set, Frank Sinatra did a set, and then they were just on stage goofing around, and they had the the bar cart on stage and the joke was uh, I'm going to make a salad and that's meant go and mix another drink and mm-hmm. uh, yeah and that, that is a show structure I've always been inspired by of like like see people perform individually so you know like they are great performers and they have chops in their you know chosen field and then kind of just play a little bit somehow because it's you get to that real humanity you know yeah yeah, no, I, I I love it as a structure. Yay. Yeah. Um, anything else that you want to share before we get to the how, how obsessed are you questions? Oh, no, we still need to get to how obsessed are you questions. <laughs> I think the answer is I'm very obsessed. But uh, yeah, no, let's uh, let's move on to the how okay. obsessed are you. Um, would you want to do a Sinatra impression? Uh, yeah. You mean right now? Sure, right now, or I meant in general, but go for it. Uh, I have for shows. There was one show I got to do a a mystery, a like uh, audience interactive mystery show, and I was playing like this uh, uh, kind of underdog. It was a mafia family thing. The stick of the show was uh, there was a an Italian mafia family, and then there was a Scandinavian mafia family, and this was in Minnesota. And Minnesotans love jokes about themselves as many of us do so the scandinavian stuff killed but i got to play like just a little guy who just who would talk like this and he just was like i never knew what what was going on and it was like uh it's been a long time since i've done it but like you know just it it was uh part uh, jerry lewis part frank sinatra and it was really really fun to kind of bring in some of my uh understanding of that voice that character that era yeah. And kind of and put it in this very broad comedy audience interactive show. Yeah, but for you it was very much partially inspired by Sinatra. Oh yeah. I mean it's yeah, been nice. it's been years, but like he's got he's especially his his singing voice is extremely distinctive, but his speaking voice is insanely distinctive. And some of it is just like the lingo of the time, but some of it is just this very uh very specific. It's low, but it's I don't know. Uh, yeah. 
Anyway, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm very obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, if I hated Frank Sinatra, which I don't, yes. but if I did, would that have been a deal breaker in our early partner friend years? No, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, would you have tried to um, see if you would you have seen it as a fun challenge to try to see the thing that made me consider Frank Sinatra? The the thing like the yeah what, like try to find okay well what's the song that would make me if not even change my mind but just like be like okay maybe I just dislike him but don't hate him yes I think that it um it would have been a deal breaker earlier in my life <laughs> <laughs> uh but I think I this goes to those great questions you were asking early on about kind of why I became obsessed with him uh because I think there are entry points that people don't know about. And they might still not like him or his music, but I think there's a huge amount of him that people don't know. And I think it would have been like, would it be okay if I told you this story or if I played you <laughs> this song and see if that's an entry point and see if that speaks to you at all? Mm-hmm. And I should also explain in case people didn't happen to listen to our tea episode where we um, used the word partner friend instead of relationship. I I yeah, or I don't know. Like yeah, that. anyway, I was I forgot the word dating because I was dating. very tired when we were recording the tea episode. And so I said, we were partner. When friends. we started being partner friends, <laughs> which is a very um, you know intense form of dating, I would say. <laughs> would you be my partner friend? Yes. <laughs> if you were going to get a tattoo, would you get one of Sinatra, um, and including that something that meant means Sinatra for you, but isn't necessarily his face? Mm, yeah. And what would it Maybe be? if I got a Sinatra, see that, that this is one of the really hard things because like a lot of the iconography of Sinatra, I can kind of see it where it started and feel it like the, a little bit of sincerity from it. Mm-hmm. But like even in the years after his death, like every year Capitol Records puts out another best of Sinatra, you know, Sinatra with the hat, you know, Sinatra with the <laughs> smile, you know, old blue, like, you know, with the microphone, the old timey microphone. It's not. And I feel like some of the kind of symbols that I associate with him that have power have a little bit been flattened by their almost their ubiquity and their corporatization, mm. you know? Yeah. And I think it's the, some of those symbols of of like. Uh, it's the the guy in the suit, the old guy out of step. Like, oh, it's the guy that I have to listen to at work at Christmas. Those same five songs. Like, <laughs> uh, so I think for myself, I'd really, I'd really have to think for a tattoo. Maybe just two blue dots. That's just gonna <laughs> for I his eyes. Just gonna say, would you consider just getting his eyes? I wouldn't get just his eyes because I think that would be creepy. Like his I eyes think, and like, his nose. Two, like artistically arranged just blue dots because there is really a power to that the you know the 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 intensity of his eyes not just the blueness but Mm -hmm. the truth of the soul shining out of there yeah very artistic very intense soul is uh is meaningful to me yeah well i've got a blue pen so (laughs) we can try it out i know what we're gonna do once we're done recording uh, if there were a bear in the doorway of a bar where you were meeting Frank Sinatra for a drink, what would you do? Oh yeah, um, I would. It, I would. I would hopefully have some dice on me because I knew I'd be making meeting Frank Sinatra. <laughs> but I would. I would roll the dice. Uh, try to get a, 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 a an eleven, <laughs> uh, and try to distract the bear with dice. Yeah. I. I really, truly, in all honesty, if there was some weird 
time portal and I knew Sinatra was in a bar, I would risk a bear. Yeah. I absolutely would to meet the man in person. And if the option were that you could have Sinatra himself either sing, act, paint, or banter to distract the bear, which would you choose? Oh, I would choose banter. (laughs) (laughs) Sinatra banters with the bear. Yeah, uh, that's, that's great. Wonderful. Well, let's move on to our plugging section. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start this time. You can find me on Instagram at Scrim Street. What would you like to plug this week? Uh, yeah, I would like to plug that you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram is at Joseph Scrimshaw. And of course, you can follow Obsessed Podcast on Twitter and Facebook is at Obsessed Podcast. You can also check out the Star Wars podcast I co-host uh, that is called Force Center. For info on all my upcoming shows and comedy albums, you can check out my website at josephscrimshaw.com. Coming soon to that website is a New Year's Eve show I'm going to be doing from home, not with Frank Sinatra, but with the Double Clicks. You can get tickets to that by going to doubleclicks.com slash New Year's Eve, and there's a dash between New Year's and Eve. Uh, you can also support Obsessed by backing us on Patreon. Full info on that, go to patreon.com slash Joseph Scrimshaw. And of course, uh, in the spirit of Sinatra, who said his uh, political opinions loud and proud, uh, we really want to make sure that those Democratic senators get elected and uh, we get control of the Senate. Uh, so there's that runoff election in Georgia, January 5th. If you want to donate, you can go to uh, fairfight.com and you can donate to both the senators and Stacey Abrams, uh, great uh, activism for uh, fighting voter suppression, all at fairfight.com. Okay, I got so excited to turn the page that I forgot (laughs) two very important questions. (laughs) So we're just going to, you know, go back and uh, start with if you could make a noise to sum up your obsession. Mm, That that one's really hard. I admit I cheated and I thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Here, I'll try to do it. Let's. (laughs) that was let's let's Mm -hmm. Uh, full of energy full of energy yeah so there is a uh the song let's fall in love on that that album that made me go hey wait this is amazing ring a ding ding uh the song let's fall in love this one is arranged uh, and orchestrated uh arranged and conducted by uh johnny mandel i believe we never worked with again but let's fall in love suddenly has a boom and there's this long pause of no music And then Sinatra picks it up with this big, let's fall in love. Uh, And it's just, it's so Sinatra. It is the first album on on his uh, label reprise where he was, his capital albums were incredibly successful, but he started fighting with the executives. They were being controlling about the music. And he's like, I'm just going to start my own record label and I'm going to do whatever I want. And there wouldn't have been probably on the capital era that huge, weird break in music we're like wait did the song stop <laughs> and then that's just so sinatra it's just it's the, the one of the many sort of um uh bits quirks in his performance is that he's able to really rip something and that's something uh in just like the pronunciation of a word that puts all this energy in it and that is something that i that i have internalized and i do to this day with stand-up or with reading or sometimes even with podcasts of just like that one syllable Let's wake everybody up by attacking that syllable yeah, and giving it extra meaning and extra pop, you know? I love it. Yeah. Let's. Let's. Okay. It's time. (laughs) It's time to rate your obsession. Oh, wow. Do you think you are obsessed with Frank Sinatra? Yes. (laughs) On a scale of one to 10. Yeah. 10 being the highest. Yeah. Where would you rate yourself? I, I would say nine. 
I would say only not 10 because um, I have so many interests in life and like in right now I don't have an active way to make Sinatra a part of my life other than, you know, I think some of these deep core ideas about performance and in life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but those have just now be, kind of become a part of shaping me the same way things in Star Wars have, you know, yeah. or Star Trek or Doctor Who. Um, but, it, and I do make an effort to listen to music. Some of his albums, I have that thing where like, I listen to that so much that one part in my life, it can be hard to just listen to the music because I feel like I'm listening to <laughs> April of 2001, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um so I do listen uh, to his music, but uh, I think that's the only thing that's holding me back from a 10 is that it's not, uh, I don't have a lot of ways to make it an active engagement in my life. Mm-hmm. Would you like to? Yeah. I mean, I feel that, yeah. I feel, uh, honestly, I, I I feel lucky to have so many things that I'm genuinely passionate about and I want to have more time to, you know, uh, just enjoy them. Like, I would love to have more time to be like, what what am I going to do tonight? I'm going to pour a, a Jack Daniels and Coke, which was his drink of choice, mm-hmm. and listen to three Sinatra albums and not do anything. Just listen to them, Yeah, you know, uh, not listen to them in the background or have it on and up. Just, just listen. I would love to do that. I do have like an idea for a um, an animated show that's inspired by that whole era of entertainment, you know, mm-hmm. everything from Frank Sinatra to Ella Fitzgerald. And like, I would love to be able to do something like that. But, you know, time. Time. <laughs> only so much time, only so many projects. Time, our great friend. Okay, we are going to move on to our final questions, uh, which one of them mentions Sinatra, but okay. it's not specifically about Sinatra. If you could go to a Sinatra concert with any fictional character, who would you choose? Uh, okay, I'm sorry. that I was still thinking about Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Say it again. So if you're going to a Sinatra concert, yes. but the question here is you're going with a fictional character, who would you choose? Uh, yeah, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> uh, I think Obi-Wan Kenobi is uh, going to be an answer to which fictional question, character question for me a lot of times. But in particular, I would love that because what I love about the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi is he uh, he causes the same kind of reactions I get from people when I tell them I like Frank Sinatra. Like, yeah, the greatest ever. Like, he's a jerk. He's a liar. Like, a lot of people don't like Obi-Wan Kenobi because they think he just straight up lied to Luke Skywalker and... You know, not telling him that Vader is his father, but telling him that Vader murdered his father and then saying it's true from a certain point of view. Some people are just yeah. like, screw that guy. He's a piece of crap. Wow. <laughs> but what I like about Obi-Wan is he is complex and nuanced and he does, you know, rub his beard and try to see things from every perspective. So I would love to sit next to Obi-Wan Kenobi at the Hollywood Bowl and see Frank Sinatra perform and go, what did you think of that song? You know, did you think that one was sincere? Like, what do you think's going on in his uh, in his soul? And have Obi-Wan Kenobi's opinion of Sinatra? Heaven. I love this. I love this. I want to record the two of you having that conversation in addition to the concert. <laughs> and then that can be one of the bonus tracks on the DVD. We've got it, or the streaming version. Okay. If you... Totally unrelated to Sinatra now. If you tapped your chest and a noise would fill the air around you, but nobody knew that the noise was coming from you, what noise would you choose? Oh, uh, maybe a a duck quack. (laughs) I would want it to be something that is sort of comically disruptive, but not frightening. So Mm -hmm. it would be entertaining. Yeah. Like... Like a weird duck quack, like, like what? Where did that come from? What is that? Yeah, I love it. 
And the final question for everyone on the podcast, including you, what is happiness? Oh, wow. I mean, I can't answer not Sinatra related. Um, talked about a lot of aspects of his career and his life and, uh, and a lot of caveats <laughs> of him being a complicated person. But um, I would say happiness for me, ha- ha- there's been some moments of happiness that have come purely from just allowing myself to be in a moment of joy. And there's some Sinatra songs, you know, it reflects his life that he, there's a reason that he, not just artistic, that the the main body of his most successful albums are just bouncing back and forth from absolute crushing sadness and woe to just explosions of joy. Uh, Nancy Sinatra says, you can hear my father smile when he's singing. And you mm. can. I know the lines and specific songs that I think he's literally smiling in the studio because he's exploding with joy. The uh, uh, early single for Capital when he was making his comeback, I've Got the World on a String, is that is one of the sounds in the world that is, to me, just happiness. It's just joy. And uh, I'll say for me, uh, happiness is is hearing that sound of joy put to music. I love it. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you for interviewing me. My pleasure. I learned a lot about us. (laughs) (laughs) That is our podcast. You've been listening to Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest shared some stories with the rest. Rate five stars if you're impressed. Okay, there's one other thing that I want to share that I think is really important about Sinatra and his contribution to uh, our larger uh, entertainment and just general culture. Mm-hmm. And I'll make it real fast because <laughs> I've said so much about Frank Sinatra. So I talked a little bit about his uh, his collapse of popularity. So Columbia Records, he's with the big studios. He's making movies with Gene Kelly's teaching him to dance. You know, he's, he's the, one of the biggest stars in the world. It, it all falls apart uh, for various reasons. Music changes. Uh, there's a lot of like, how much is that doggy in the window? And nobody wants Tin Pan Alley songs. Nobody wants to hear Cole Porter uh, anymore. Uh, and uh, he he pisses people off at the movie studio. And most importantly, he starts having like, real public problems. He is having a really public affair with Ava Gardner. Uh, there's a gossip reporter that he hates and he punches him out and gets dragged into court. And that was back in the day where the studio created your image. And he was that likable fellow who sings about love while all of your fellows were in the war. And then like the reality seeping in is he's got a temper and he's having an affair with Ava Gardner and punching people out. Mm-hmm. And he lost everything. Famous Sammy Davis Jr. quote where he's like, he walked by Frank Sinatra on the street of New York and nobody was bothering him. And, you know, Hmm. months before he was the biggest star in the world. Hmm. So he has this utter collapse. And then he uh, he gets a chance in uh, from here to eternity and he, he plays a scrappy underdog. And that works really well for him. Uh, he he comes back with a, a, a like a literally a, a different timber in his voice. In that kind of uh, wise old man, I have been through everything. I know the highs and I know the lows. And he puts that into the music. Uh, but kind of the big picture thing he did with all that to make this big return. We're talking around like you know uh, 53, 54, He's making this big return. Uh, he just leans into like, yeah. Before I was like this nice kid who had a little twinkle in his eye that was about danger and sexuality. And I'm just going to lean into it and say like, yeah, I like booze. Yeah. 
I've had some affairs. Yeah, I've gotten into some trouble, but I'm still a tender soul, too. And, like, he was one of the first people who took that, like, uh, the the public scene a little bit of his reality and just going, I'm going to lean into it. Mm. And I think it really resonated. Uh, it, it showed through in his art, and the honesty showed through, and I think just even in that era of the 50s that is so known for being sort of manufactured and here are films about how, how to sit up, how, you know, to have correct posture. This guy with a little bit of like, yeah, no, I uh, I, I am a little dangerous. I, I do break the rules a little bit and I'm gonna, in this little way, be honest about it. You know, that starts the whole trajectory that that I think our relationship with stars and artists has been on sense of like, but who are you really? We don't want anything manufactured. Hmm. Who are you really? And I think Sinatra was one of the first people to like crack that open and start to go like, all right, I'll show you a little bit of, of who I really am, you know, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. 